Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks that you are a God who delights in making himself known. And we thank you that we have the scriptures in our own language that we can understand, that we might know everything that you have given to us for our good, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we are not embarrassed about a single page of your scripture. We are not ashamed of your judgment because it, it gives us the opportunity to behold the beauty of your grace and your mercy and your salvation. And so, Lord, as we look at this uh, solemn passage this morning, we pray that it might point us to the wonderful salvation that Christ has offered us. The Lord may also highlight the magnitude of your anger against sin and rebellion. Lord, transform our hearts that we might love you more, that we might be shaped and changed to become more like your Son. Through our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's probably not too many more expressions, more Aussie than a, I'll give it a crack. You know, it's a, remember Peter Sondergeld from Project Church, now called Restoration Church, said it was kind of like the unofficial um, slogan of their church. But the idea of I'll give it a crack usually conveys I've got no idea if I've got the ability but I'm willing to try and I might find out that I am able to do something. The culture we live in isn't a big fan of expressions like I can't. Because to say I can't means you also need to confess there is something bigger and greater than me that I'm unable to do. And I think that's a broadly an opinion that shapes our world is we think we are king, we are the utmost, and we don't like to recognise there is anything bigger or greater than ourselves. During the week I was chatting to someone whose family's got a uh, cotton farm um, who unfortunately again because of the rains have lost a crop again this year. Now they are great farmers. But at the same time, regardless of how good of a farmer you might be, they are powerless to factors that are bigger than them. There are things that you are unable to control. Last week when we started, Joel, we looked at the entirety of, of chapter 1, which described a locust plague like nothing they'd ever seen before. And not just any locust plague, a locust plague that God had sent upon the people in judgment for their sin. They'd lost their food supplies, they'd lost their drinks, they'd lost even the ability to do some of the daily offerings that were required in order for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God. It appears from some of the clues that are given in the passage that the judgment was because the people had gone after other gods. And you think, when will people ever learn? You look through Israel's history, how many times they go off to other gods, they get judged, they repent, they say, we won't do it ever again, and the cycle goes round and round and round. And while there are varied views as to the dating of when Joel was written, if I am correct that this took, was written after they'd returned from exile, then you think, surely this should be quite fresh in their mind. 
The priests were called to lead the people in a, in a lament, to call a solemn assembly that they might cry out to God for his mercy. And we saw quite a shameful comparison in verse 20, where it said, Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because of the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Even the beasts of the field cry out for God while his covenant people had rebelled and turned their backs. One of the key themes in Joel, which we see repeated five times in this short book of only three chapters, is the theme of the day of the Lord. Describing a day when God will come and act in judgment against sin. There are many things that are described using that language throughout the scriptures, some of which serve as a foretaste of the great and final day of the Lord. One of those being the locust plague that we read about in chapter 1. But as we look at these 11 verses this morning, we're going to see sounding alarm bells in verses 1 to 2, ask the question of who is this army that Joel is describing? What is it that they will do in verses 3 to 10? And conclude with, who can endure this day? So firstly, alarm bells. Because this is the way the chapter opens. The chapter opens with a call to a, a warning, a sound of a warning and an alarm. Saying, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Now this blowing of a trumpet or, or a blowing of a chauffeur had two uses. Sometimes it would, within the city walls itself you would have watchmen and their job was to, to look out for oncoming threats and they would blow the, the alarm or the trumpet as a way of signalling to the people in the city that a threat was on its way. However, the description here doesn't say blow the trumpet in the city walls. It says, blow the trumpets, sound the alarm in Zion on the holy mountain. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, we were told that what we are reading here is the word of the Lord that has come to Joel. It is God himself is saying, warn the people. There is a day coming. Let the people know of an impending threat, this day of the Lord. But there was also another purpose for the blowing of a trumpet. In chapter 1, the priests were called to gather the people together for a solemn assembly. And often from the temple they would blow the trumpets as a way of gathering a people to assemble. That they would come for a solemn assembly to cry out to the Lord in repentance. When we lived in Mafra in Victoria... It took us a while to figure it out, but there was like an air raid siren that happened quite frequently, and we eventually ended up asking the question of, what's that sound? Because we know there's no major air, Mafra's not the greatest military threat, and they think, we better target this little rural town of 4,500 people. The thing was, it was from the fire brigade. They had a limited number of pages for their volunteers, and if there was a fire event, if they didn't get enough response from sending out the message to the pages, they'd sound that alarm so others who didn't have a page would know that there was a need for them to go to the, to the fire base. 
But in Joel, I think he's trying to put forward potentially both of those purposes. Both of a calling a people together that they might cry out to the Lord in repentance. But also, too, a warning of what is coming their way if the people don't repent. It says, let all of the inhabitants of the, world, of the, of the area to tremble for this day of the Lord. Now, some of the imagery is quite familiar. It talks about darkness and clouds, the people trembling. It's very similar to when God rested upon the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, same language, and the people all trembled. But note where this warning's coming from. From Zion. From the holy mountain, a place where, where the temple stood. A place where many people thought, this is where we are secure. We are safe because we are the people of Zion. Yet that was the location where the warning was sounded. The day of the Lord, God judging against sin is coming. And I think that was a very stark reminder of the people, your geographical location, your ethnicity, your being descended from Abraham, being near the temple, none of those things is what will protect you from the day of the Lord. Or to put it into our context, your church attendance, your baptism, your good works and all of their tally will not be what saves you from the day of the Lord. God's judgment is against sin, of which every single one of us was guilty. Our only hope is to cry out for the mercy of our God. That maybe this judgment, this army that, that Joel is speaking of might relent. But who is this army? It's written in kind of vague terms and scholars are quite conflicted about who they believe this should be describing. There are a number who think this is just a, a graphical retelling of the locust plague. Others say no, it's an actual human army, a military threat coming towards the city. Depending on when they date the writing of Joel, because there's not much in the way of historical details within the book, Maybe they think it's Babylon. Maybe they think it's something else. But there's reasons why I don't believe it's either of those two. Firstly, in chapter 1, when it describes the locust plague and all of its effects, it was speaking about something that had happened. Whereas in chapter 2, it's warning about something that is to happen in the future. Yes, there is some common language between the two, hence why people... Well, often we'll link the two things together. But for reasons that I mentioned last week, especially what seems to be the familiarity with priestly function, temple, the wall, I'm inclined to think this was written during a time when they had returned from exile, when there wasn't a known national threat against the people. In chapter 1, verse 15, it said, The day of the Lord is near... Chapter 2, as it introduced this passage we're looking at this morning, says, It is near, prepare, sound the alarms, it is coming. Now I'm inclined to believe this army that is described is an angelic army 
from God in judgment against sin. But regardless of who you conclude this army is, there's one thing that everyone's agreed upon. They are unstoppable. They are totally unhindered. There is no room for thinking, let's have a crack. One thing that is 100% undeniable and undebatable is whose army it is and who is directing them. Verse 11 says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It is the Lord's army, following and carrying out his commands, his purposes. In chapter 1, the people were called to call out to God, to lament, to cry out to him. And seems chapter 2 is a description and a warning of what is coming if they don't. That God will not overlook their rebellion. He will not just casually just cast a blind eye on their dishonour. He will act in judgment. His judgment will be swift, it will be unhindered, and resistance will be futile. So how does the Lord, through the prophet Joel, describe this judgment? Let's have a look at verses 3 to 10. These verses paint a vivid but a terrifying picture. Usually when you hear about a potential threat of an army, the first thing you do is you start to weigh out, well, what have they got? What sort of resources they got? What have we got? What's the chances of them succeeding in any way whatsoever? But the description we have in these verses, there is absolutely nothing by way of a glimmer of hope against them. The way things are described is in terms of being like a fiery destruction. What little was left after the locusts will be destroyed by fire. Picture language of horses, chariots and warriors. And if that's describing the threat which is coming, you see that in a very stark comparison to the description of the people in verse 6. It just says, Before them, peoples are in anguish and all faces grow pale. It's not really an image of guys patting each other on the back and saying, Come on, fellas, we've got this. It's like, They're in anguish. All of them, their faces grow pale in fear and terror and being utterly helpless. Through all of the portrayals and the images used in these verses, you see the Lord's army is unstoppable, completely unhindered. Especially when you look at verses 7 to 8. It says, Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They don't even get shifted off their past at all. It almost sounds like some big blockbuster Hollywood film. It says they just go blasting through the weapons and not hindered in any way whatsoever. You know those movies where you see them, they've all got these big weapons, they're firing it, and whatever, the robotic armies coming out and just don't even get dented, they just keep on coming? 
But some of the language here in verse 10, where the earth and heavens are shaken, the darkness and the skies and in the stars, is exactly the way that Jesus himself describes this day of the Lord at his return. Reading from Matthew 24, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Or again, Peter and Second Peter describing this day of the Lord, saying it will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. The Lord through the prophet Joel couldn't have spelt it out more vividly and more clearly. The day of the Lord was near. It was coming if the people did not repent. Where God will act against sin... in a way that is unstoppable, unhindered. And given that description, one needs to ask, and the prophet does ask, who can endure it? The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? The ESV got the great, great and awesome day of the Lord. NIV would have great and dreadful, or if you've got New King James, great and terrible day of the Lord. There is absolutely nothing about the description of this day that warrants the Aussie approach of, I'll have a crack. But it's surprising when you have a conversation with somebody and you ask them the question, what if the Bible is true? What if the Bible is true about what it says about God, what it says about Jesus, what it says about a day of the Lord, a day when everything will be judged? You know what the most common thing I get told? That's a risk I'm willing to take. Really? If it is actually true the way in which it is described here in Joel and throughout the scriptures, you think, if it does happen, I'll just give it a crack. Well, somehow you concluded, no, I see what you're getting at, but it doesn't really seem a big enough serious issue for me to think about now. But what if you were convinced? Or take it that step further, what would it take to convince you? Even though we're told in Romans chapter 1 that everybody has an inbuilt knowledge that there is a God of eternal power because it says God has made it plainly known to them. It might be deeply suppressed as they've exchanged the truth for a lie but everyone deep down, so I can say with all confidence in any setting that deep down anyone I'm speaking to has an awareness that there is a God of eternal power. But despite all this, most people actually have not considered how to answer that question. 
What would I do if I was convinced? Because they've exchanged the truth for a lie. And they've done it for so long that they have believed the lie and the truth doesn't even seem like a a vague, distant memory. But what we have got is a word from the Lord, the ruler of all, the one who the psalmist says does everything he sets out to, everything he pleases. In other words, we have the most reliable source as well as the one the only one who is able to follow through on every single thing that he says. And even though Paul describes the way in which people will respond, saying God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, regardless of how much they might reject him now, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, even the person who's absolutely written off any chance that Jesus is who he says he is will recognise and proclaim that he is Lord. But on that day, we'll be too late to make preparation for the day of the Lord because it will have come. When Jesus comes, it'll happen exactly the way Joel describes. His judgment will be decisive, inevitable, unhindered, unstoppable. Joel says, who can endure it? And I'm glad there's a good answer to that question, otherwise this would be a very depressing message. There is a good news. We'll see some of the grace and mercy that we see offered to these people in the very next chapter, next verses. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17 next week. This day of the Lord where God is going to act in judgment against sin and unrighteousness. Even though it's spoken of in such terms where there's unstoppable, nothing can stand in the way. Nothing that we can do. But in the gospel we see what God has done in Jesus. Jesus came in grace and mercy to deal with our sin, to deal with our unrighteousness. God's wrath against sin that we see depicted here this morning in Joel chapter 2 was poured out on his beloved son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So that any who repent and place their faith in In Jesus, the day of the Lord, the wrath against sin has been turned away from them because it's been placed on Christ on their behalf. However, the warning trumpets of Joel still call out, this day is still coming. Now is the day of the salvation. Now is the day to turn and trust Because if you do not turn, there will be exactly as Joel describes, a great and terrible day of the Lord. But the good news is, for those who receive God's gracious gift of salvation by calling out, depending upon the mercy of God, repenting, placing your faith in Christ who has died on your behalf and raised in victory, seated at the right hand and will return for his people. Then for those who hopefully, which is, 
those who are gathered here this morning, or if not, could be those who are gathered here this morning, that it's not a day to be feared, a day to be longed for, where you receive and obtain the salvation of your souls. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love your creation enough that you are not silent in sounding alarm bells. In so many areas of our life, we have warning systems, whether it be for for flooding or other natural disasters, fires. They are to alert us to a danger that we might act appropriately. And Lord, as we consider your judgment, it makes our hearts long for a means of escape, a means of relenting. And we thank you that in Christ you have provided that secure place. You have provided not only our protection from the day of the Lord. But Lord, you have given us all spiritual blessings in Christ. Where it's not just what we save us from, but all of the great riches of what you save us to. And Lord, we thank you that even if there be people who are hearing this message who have not yet turned to you in faith, and who come to realise that this is your warning message to the world, may they find great joy in knowing that the one who warned us also provided the way of escape, the way of salvation, through repentance and faith in Christ, who has delivered us from sin, Satan and death, who has given the very righteousness of Christ to those who call upon him in faith, And Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that we don't deserve, but we thank you for your beautiful character that longs to save that which is lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.